Hey everybody, it's Ned Buskirk, your host for your Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. Sometimes I think I want to say A, and and I know for sure no one else is calling their podcast that. And also, since it is the one, it is yours. If you're listening, it's yours. This is for your ear canals only. Um, we are the Insider Club. Uh, some people in 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 the grief workshop, one person helped articulate this. It's the too much club. We are here to talk about the too much things. And uh, after being away for a little while on vacation, I'm realizing as I come back here that also these grief spaces, these hard parts, these hard conversations deserve, 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 deserve like laughter and love and hugs and lightness too. And I love this episode because it kind of does that. Like I got that out of my trip. I was on the travels, on the road, in the summer, drinking the drinks, eating the food, riding the bikes, playing in the water, and also being with, say, my dad, who's not young. And um, I don't know, some t- somehow now I'm like, it's miraculous I ever get to see him again. Um, but But knowing that's part of where life is at and feeling that. And uh, knowing that part of the what I got to do there is not just like talk endlessly about that, but just like hug him, kiss him on the face. I want him to feel um, loved, you know, and uh, and that I got the opportunity to do that. So that that's good. And uh, I'm bringing it back here. This episode feels like a version of that. And I'm just going to get to it because I'm so happy to be getting another episode out and and one that has a lot of the the hard stuff. But Kara is also fun to laugh with and talk about these things in, in ways that we're like, okay, yeah, it's dark, but also we're here together and connecting. And anyway, I love this conversation for that. And it was nice to re-listen to it. And I'm so glad to share it with you. And I just want to get into it. Cara Levine lives in Los Angeles, California. She is an artist exploring the intersections of the physical, metaphysical, traumatic, and illusionary through sculpture, video, and socially engaged practice. She is the founder of This Is Not a Gun, a multidisciplinary project aiming to create awareness and activism around police brutality through collective creative action. And she is currently an associate adjunct at Otis College of Art and Design. My, the way I meet Kara is during the pandemic, there's an online sort of grief space, but it's connected, I think, in a, a way to This Is Not a Gun. But that's my intro through Angela Hennessy, a dear friend of mine who's been on the show. Go check out that episode also. I always do this. Like, not right now. After this episode, go listen to Angela's episode. But that's how I got introduced to Kara. So thanks to Angela for bringing Kara into my life. A couple things to note that Kara has been up to l- lately. And then I'll just explain a couple different things to set you up for the conversation. But recently uh, in summer 2022, 
She did a solo presentation of new work at Super Collider Mothership in Los Angeles called Regardless of the Weather. She participated in a group show in LA called Duets in Color Breathing. Currently, she's Super Collider Psy Art Ambassador in Los Angeles, California. Upcoming shows include a group show at Vorden Zimmer Gallery. None of these websites say how to say words, so I'm sorry if I said it wrong, okay? I tried. I looked up all the little YouTube videos. How do you pronounce a word? They don't exist. So I think it's Von Zimmer Gallery, Los Angeles. That's in October. And then some exciting local stuff here for us in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's just to be announced eventually. And the projects that really land in the midst of this episode are This Is Not a Gun, which Carl will explain plenty, and then Dig, A Place to Put Your Grief In. This project is like something I feel like I missed out on, but there's so many ways Kara shares it with the world here in the episode for sure. You definitely get it, and we'll try to give it to you in the ways we can creatively. Um, but also I'll put some links in the show notes so you can check it out yourself. Cause actually there's ways that even just watching the documentary about it, which I'll, we'll talk about even more later. Um, it gives us something. And I think that's Cara. Cara is doing art and work in the world that gives us the place to put the grief uh, among other things. Um, and I'll leave it at that. I think that covers it. I hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Cara Levine. Yeah, um, well, just to say, if you're, you know, most of your listeners probably have no idea who in the world I am, <laughs> but I am a multidisciplinary artist, meaning I work across many disciplines. Um uh, I live in Los Angeles. I'm from Los Angeles. I'm a third generation Angelino actually on both sides. It's a place that's very special to me. Um, and I make work in predominantly sculpture and performance and video and sort of socially engaged work. Uh, and that work manifests, you know, uh, around ideas of trauma and grief, um, kind of community collectivism, um, and, and access, like how can we, how can we access this work and, and access also, I've spent many years working with artists with developmental disabilities and have been an advocate for that kind of access to art. Um, there are two projects specifically that you and I have spent some time talking about. One of them is called This Is Not a Gun, which I've been working on for about five years. Um, and, and that project has to do with coming together around issues of racial violence and police violence specifically um, and having intersectional conversations. And um, the other project is called Dig a Hole to Put Your Grief In. And that is a project that took place this last summer uh, in August, 2021. And I'm definitely, just to answer your question, still processing a lot of what happened during that week long uh, artwork. And I haven't, the moment that artwork ended, 
I pivoted towards academia and the school semester began uh, like four days after the dig project ended. And I just I haven't had the time that my body wants to process all that took place during that week. Um, yeah. Uh, first of all, just to acknowledge that you're doing things in the world that obviously mean a lot to me. And you're like, your listeners don't know who I am. The truth is like, there's very, it's very possible that they do. In fact, people have sent me your work separate of them. No, they don't know that I know you like your dig project. My friend in Berlin sent me a link to uh, oh, amazing. And I was like, That's I so know, amazing. <laughs> I know. What I want to make time for, obviously, and I know you do too, is something that I feel like we connect, maybe a way that we connect um, easily, like we did when we first talked, which is this mm-hmm. way that we're in the world now because of what we've mm-hmm. lived through. And so mm-hmm. that's going to be a really big question for me on the other side of you describing these this these projects mm-hmm. is the like why you know the compulsion to end up you know holding space creatively in this way and and engaging with grief in these ways. So that's that I'd love to have you describe both those projects and then it'd be really nice to get to the story that led to why you would even do them. Yeah, no, I appreciate that and I appreciate just the seeing the whole picture that those things are linked. Um, So, okay. Um, The sort of bigger and more established project of the two um, is This Is Not a Gun. And This Is Not a Gun, as I said, is a a multi-part project that began about five years ago now, it began in December, actually almost exactly December of 2016. In December of 2016, I um, encountered over social media. I think someone sent this to me, a friend sent it to me, a list that was published by Harper's Magazine. And Harper's puts out these lists that have their, their sort of like catchy click, excuse me, clickbait kind of things. And this list, I have it on the wall, is called Trigger Warning from a list of objects that were mistaken for guns during shootings of civilians by police in the United States since 2001. And then there's a list of 23 objects, and they include a wrench, a cordless drill, a water hose nozzle, a flashlight, shower rod, cane, broomstick, hairbrush, sunglasses, cologne, underwear, tinfoil, and so on. 23 objects set of keys, cell phone, iPod. All of the objects are um, mundane, ubiquitous objects that we are all familiar with. There's not a single object on there that is not something everybody knows. Um, And when I saw the list, I was dismayed and appalled and I felt the shock that I think they want you to feel, which is like, oh my God, how could a police officer ever mistake, you know, a Bible for a gun? But I also know how. (laughs) And the reason how is that officer, I mean, this is a generalization, but it's a, it's a relevant one. Um, That officer is not thinking the Bible is a gun. The officer is, is um, thinking that the person holding it is a threat. And generally that person um, more times than not is a black man. 
And so what I became aware of and really frustrated with and angry about was that none of the context for these shootings of unarmed civilians was um, described in the list. There was no names, there was no ethnicity, no age, circumstance, place, race, um, class, ability, nothing. There was just the objects. And so the, the stories and the humans disappeared. Um, and so my first impulse was like, I need to slow down the stream of information that's coming to me. Like, I think many of us can um, relate to this feeling of like, we have, we're in such a tirade of information all the time and we get shocking things hit us, but then they just go by. And then you've like been slightly traumatized, but it doesn't stay. <laughs> and so I have kind of a practice of trying to say, whoa, this is, uh, this one I'm going to stop. <laughs> uh, and so my first impulse was to really slow down and to try to, understand what happened here. Well, um, have you, um, just to kind of check in on that, uh, is yeah. that something you, can you describe why you, why and when you do that? You know, it's like, is there a time um, you're yeah. like starting to or didn't before or, yeah. Well, is there a time when I started to or didn't before? I think it is a response to like the speed of the 24-hour news cycle and mm. also like social media um, and advertisements. And I didn't do this or need to do this until the last five or six years, I don't yeah. think, mm -hmm. um, as things have inundated so intensely. But I, I'm... A person who's very aware of my body in the moment, and um, I get very overwhelmed by too much information, mm -hmm. uh, and I can lose focus. And I, and I think it also it's you know we know that all this information on us can be very numbing, mm -hmm. um, and I don't think we should be numbed by stories of murder. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> of unarmed <laughs> I people. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's when it happens. And it also happens like um, around other crises, like environmental crises, devastation. I just, I actually have like a folder on my computer of images that I see that go by a million miles an hour that I'm like, I got to stop here. Mm. And I just sort of hold on to it and have a part of my practice that slows down around the thing that I've witnessed and mm. tries to understand it. Um, and I can't predict it. Uh, just anecdotally, mm. a few years ago, I was driving to work and I was driving behind a truck, like a Penske truck. Mm -hmm. And the truck was painted over Penske yellow, didn't have the labels on it. On the back of the truck had sticker letters. And the sticker letters said, Fear is a liar. <laughs> mm. And so I was I was in the wake of this truck for like two or three miles. That was just this yellow truck that said fear is a liar on the back. And it, this was when, you know, the um, 
the immigrant children, child separations were happening. Mm -hmm. This is when Amy Coney Barrett was on trial. Mm -hmm. This was like in the impeachment hearings were happening. And I was just like, fear is not a fucking liar. Yeah. (laughs) People's lives. (laughs) People's lives are at stake right now. Mm. They need fear. Mm -hmm. Fear is a survival mechanism. And I understand as like a, metaphysical, you know, idea, new age idea that like fear is a construct and we can get over everything, get through it, you know, and so on. But I also get really frustrated with angles of like spiritual bypass. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's what it was trying to do, Uh but I read so much into these four words yeah that never you know and and so that was one that made me stop and i mm. ended up taking a picture of it in my car and then making a big tapestry and then doing a bunch of works under the title fear is a liar and mm. it just stuck with me as a phrase that um that had a lot of was really complicated complicated mm-hmm. enough to unpack yeah um there's like alex ebert who's been on the on the podcast, he's been doing a lot of posts, the spiritual bypassing, you know, like yeah. an image of someone, you know, like a little boy who's clearly starving. And then you put yeah. any phrase over it that we use in our day, like manifest your destiny, Correct. you know, it's just like, <sighs> what the, you know, it's like you, you said it. It's like, okay, I get what you're trying to do there with your fear, yeah. but also yeah. the world, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, also surviving, you know, mm-hmm. also, yeah, people, like, how does that help that little boy? Obviously, like, <laughs> makes me, yeah, it makes me very unhappy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. But so, so to go back to this is not a gun. So, so I had this list um, and I had, and, and another thing that happens in my practice is I will meet up with problems like fear is a liar that feel irreconcilable to mm. me in a, in a, in an intellectual way. Mm-hmm. And it is irreconcilable to me that a sandwich could be ever mistaken as a gun. Um, and that somebody could be shot while holding a sandwich and killed. Yeah. Um, this is something that I cannot gr- understand. And I was really grappling with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first, so there's three phases of the project. And the first phase is, um, Uh, in my studio where I began carving these objects in wood. So I slowed way down and I carved replicas of the objects to scale of life and um, copied them in, in, in wood. And then while I was carving, I um, also spent time putting myself through what I'm calling like a re-education of the history of race in the United States. So I started to take more seriously educating myself about the history of the prison system, the history of uh, abolition, um, and um, basically how we moved from slavery to the police state. um, And then also understanding uh, the demographics of, of, of politics um, and government policing. And then on top of that, doing the research to learn the stories of all of the individuals on the list. Yes. So then, sorry, I know this is a lot of information, but it's No, just, this is great. No, yeah, five years. I want all of this. Yeah, tell okay. me everything. <laughs> uh, so then, you know, I 
for me, I was able to use this time to make these objects and learn and also to grieve um, and to grapple with the irreconcilability. Mm. But this work is not about me. Um, and I wanted to open up a greater conversation um, about what it is about, which is racism. Mm -hmm. um, and so quickly I started hosting uh, workshops with other artists and activists um, and heal healing arts people, my, you know, mindfulness leaders specifically, who are people of color who were invested in racial equity in their work and wanted to partner with me to to make these to host events where we make these same objects in clay, which is much more accessible than wood carving. Mm -hmm. um, so we make the objects in clay, and then we have a conversation about. Uh, racial violence around trauma, around grief, um, white privilege, accountability, all of the things that come up kind of, they come up and out through the making process. Mm. And so we've been holding these conversations and these workshops for, for, for years now. Mm -hmm. um, and then the final phase of the project or third limb of the project um, is the book. We came yeah. out with a book in April of 2020 called This Is Not a Gun. It was published by an Oakland um, publisher named uh, Vivian Sming, Sming Sming Press. Mm -hmm. And it brings together 40 different artists and writers, activists, and meditation teachers, all writing about 40 different objects that police have mistaken for as guns. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a great opportunity to be able to bring in some of the voices that have been collaborating on this project in a more substantive way mm -hmm. um, and let them express through their creative practices um, what this work means to them. Mm -hmm. So that's, this is not a gun in a yeah. nutshell. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I know I know we're gonna move into the dig project, but I'm just I'm just kind of wanting to this isn't a question. It's just acknowledging what I feel, which is um ooh, how I know it's not about you. So I really wanna highlight that important um note. But I also just imagine you very emotionally mm. involved in this. Mm -hmm. And it's very, it means, it means a great deal um, to sense that. Uh, mm -hmm. I can even get to like literally, <laughs> I don't know if it happened and you don't need to, this isn't something you need to say did or didn't happen. But I just imagine you like weeping over this, these wood carvings, you know, like while you're mm -hmm. in it, having these moments of really holding like mm -hmm. they held uh, mm -hmm. these items. So it's it's more of an acknowledgement for what this must have been like sometimes to be in and and through, live through. Um, and it's how I got introduced to you, is that project. Yeah. So it really does mean a lot to hear you describe it. And I'm, gl I'm glad you took the time to do that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it means the world to me. Um, I think that there is a important place for us to be able to grieve um, kind of like the pain of the world. Mm. And 
to be able to get close to pain, even if it's not yours directly and to, um, like these are people and each person has, you know, like all the ripples of a life around them, all the rings, they have children and parents and cousins and jobs and relationships and stories and histories and futures. And each person (laughs) deserves all of our attention, Mm -hmm. you know? And I just, I, I feel that really wholeheartedly. And I think that's what really hurt or what struck me in the list was like, mm-hmm. well, you've just taken all the attention away from the 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 tragedy. Yeah, you know. I mean, no and, excuse, so, right? I'm just like, yeah, getting your point about that. This is like they're just like we're making a list. That's the point, right? Let's just, but it's a little. It ends up being like sort of sensationalizing it. And that might not be the right word, but it's just like strikes. It, it, it's, it's created in a way that I feel like, to your point about like the slowing down needed, it's like mm-hmm. that list would hit you and then you'd move on. It's like you just right. look at it and you're like, shit, wow, that's really potent and powerful. What's on the right. next page, you know? And right. so your attention to digging into the lives and the details, you know, that miss, those missing pieces. We deserve all of them. You know, it's like you say, we deserve, like they deserve all of our attention and we also deserve all of them. You know, like we need to know, mm-hmm. we need to know all those things. Yeah, I mean, you think about all the people who have died this year, Americans and mm-hmm. any, anybody worldwide, like it's incredibly hidden. I mean, you think about the images of American soldiers coming back from Vietnam and then, you know, caskets coming off the airplane. Um, We don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't see those deaths. Mm -mm. It's a number. Mm -hmm. 725,000 people have died of COVID in America. Mm -hmm. How do you quantify that? Mm -hmm. How do you even wrap your mind around that? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I knew somebody... Uh, at Creative Growth. I used to work at Creative Growth Art Center in Oakland as the ceramics teacher. And one of my clients there was this amazing artist. And I won't say his name just in case he didn't want me to tell this story. Um, But I think he wouldn't mind. Um, But he has, he shared with me this job that he sees himself having, which is, this is a man who died as a child. He was in a car accident and died and then was resuscitated. And he had brain damage and has lived the rest of his life um, with with, um, traumatic brain injury, the results of traumatic brain injury. And when deep tragedies happen and many people die, um, he has a job of, he sort of goes to sleep and kind of cocoons. Um, and then his spirit goes to the people who are dying and he, he brings them to the gates of heaven. Mm. Um, and, you know, think what you want about, you know, um, people's different lived realities, but this is his work Mm -hmm. and it's the most taxing talk about this is where we began. 
You know, he he can't do anything else when this is happening. He can barely eat. He's in bed the whole time. It's so draining, um, this work, but it's so important and he's the person to do it. Mm. And I just think about someone like that in moments like this, where like, where do you even begin? Like, how do you touch all those people? Um, How do you ferry all those people? Um, Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the answer is like, I don't, you know, I don't have a choice. I I have to, I feel this about what you do when I listen to Mm -hmm. you. It's Mm -hmm. like, you don't have a choice. You'd be like, well, I practice at, you know, when I turned into a teenager, I started practicing slowing down through a Excel spreadsheet (laughs) program. You know, it's like, it's not, that's (laughs) not what happened. You know, it's just like, you can't, you don't have a choice, but to be struck by the truck you know, like right. you were and right. the words on it. Right. And and you don't have a choice but to look at that list and be like, what's what's missing? What's my work? You know? Yeah. And, and I will say like, for me, when I started the carvings, like you said, holding them in my hands, that was an important thing for me. I, I sort of felt like, well, I'm taking this block of wood and I'm going to make it look like a sandwich. And if somewhere along the way, it... I understand how you could have thought this was a gun. Mm. Then I'll understand more about it. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. nowhere along the way in no. the 30 hours or 50 hours it took me to carve this and those 50 hours that I held it in my hand, did it ever look anything like a gun? <laughs> yeah. You know, with yeah. just a little bit of attention. And I think mm. that's that's what I'm calling forth is this like, you're not looking. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not looking. You're you're seeing what you want to see. You're inventing a threat. You're bringing your bias. You're bringing your fear. And you're not looking. And people are dying. So Nick and I were our producer, Nick Jana, to be clear. We were talking about what this moment that we usually do in the show could be, asking Kara what she thought about some of the content, like audio content that she maybe had for sharing, put to music by Nick Jana. And that's usually, that's it. That's, That's just part of what I love about Nick's work on the show is that He's so t- such a talented musician and um, also such a heartfelt editor. But but the talented musician part matters so much to me. But we were talking about what we could share, and Kara had sent the, the online video, like a short documentary about the dig, called Dig a Hole to Put Your Grief In. I mean, that's the project, but this is the video too. And so we talked a bit about maybe sharing audio from that, from some of the talking and voices and sharing and people that were a part of the project the, the week or so. Um, that they did this durational performance um, for grief in Malibu, California. And ultimately, while I would get that listening to a couple minutes of that might offer you a little more knowing of that, I'm going to just direct you to watch it. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Just check it out because you should watch it in full. It's actually a really special, meditative, moving, and beautiful, beautifully shot um, 
capturing a, a powerful experience with this community in a way that like feels like you're getting your own grief expressed. And But for the purposes of our mid-show moment here, I really just felt like pulling every digging sound that we could from the documentary that didn't already have music and have Nick do what he does so well. And so that's what we have for you here. So two notes, check out the link for dig a hole to put your grief in. Watch that short video. It's not long and it's precious. And here is your own little way to get some digging. Listen to it like you're doing the digging and being held at the same time with the music of Nick Jana. called dig a hole to put your grief in and it's a project that i um came up with in 2020 and executed in 2021 and may may repeat um and ostensibly it's like a multi-day um durational performance piece that's participatory mm-hmm. and Basically what happened was I was invited to apply for a grant um, from the American Jewish University with whom I had just done a short residency. And the grant was for new work. And this was in the middle of COVID. (laughs) And I was like, what new work? I was like, like, what are you people crazy? And I was like, uh, I just, all I want to do is dig a hole. That's all I want to do. Wait, like literally that was your, like you're looking at the grant option and you're like, I just want to dig a hole. Like that's literally what your response was? Yes, that's what my response was. Oh my gosh, yeah. I was like, I'm bereft. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm, there's so much pain. Mm -hmm. Um, the pain is everywhere. The grief is everywhere. And there's no gatherings happening. There's no, at least look, I am like a secular Jew from LA 
Um, and I have a great community of artists and a queer community in LA. Um, but no spiritual leaders that I was, you know, close to, I, there was just nowhere for, for people to go to be together. We were all isolated and nobody was grieving together and all this loss was happening. And so I just, personally, I wanted to dig a hole for my grief that mm-hmm. had to be very big. Mm-hmm. And I also just thought other people should dig this hole with me. Mm-hmm. Other people will, will have grief to put in this hole. Mm-hmm. And so it took a long time for it to happen. As you said, we had one site that fell through in March and then miraculously it got picked up again by this amazing place called the Shalom Institute in the Malibu mountains. And the Shalom Institute has been there for 70 years and uh, they were devastated by the Wolsey fire in 2018. Um, 95% of their 200 acre campus was destroyed. Mm. Um, and, and like I said, 70 years. Mm. So they are like a, a camp and they had an organic farm and they do like non-denominational programming around get community gathering. Anyway, so dig finally happened, um, in August of 2021. And an important and beautiful element of the project was that so, so basically, I structured the digging of the hole around the concept of Shiva, the Jewish um, grief process that families go through when they're mourning the loss of somebody who's just died. Mm-hmm. And it's a um, seven-day process where the community gathers around the family, brings them food, brings them, yeah. uh, just gives them company, cares for them uh, in a very um, intimate, tight way for that for that concentrated period of time. Mm -hmm. And so in the seven days, in my case, it was eight, it was Saturday to Saturday. I had, I was digging every day and I invited the public to join me in digging. So the public could come to the hole and dig with me while I was digging. And then during the week, it was punctuated by other artists doing their work um, around the hole, using the hole as a site for new works. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was artists and also spiritual leaders. We, we had, um, an amazing man named Alan Salazar, who's a Chumash, um, and Tataviam tribal leader and storyteller mm-hmm. open the hole and bless the, the area before we began. And then, um, in the m- midweek we had Cantor Chaim Frankel come and do a Havdalah service, which mm-hmm. is a, a closing Saturday night service, but it can happen all the way through Tuesday um, where we, we ritualized around the hall and we um, just continue to put energetically and emotionally um, our love and our tears and our names and names of our dead in the hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then we closed with a big celebration with hand washing and planting of seeds and, and hundred people came and refilled the hole with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sold out. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. a, an amazing event. Uh, mm-hmm. and I worked with brilliant artists, you know, I, inc- I, I can list them all, but they're all listed on my website also. Well, yeah, we'll make sure to share it. Yeah. I mean, you know, what I love is like at the end of COVID, you could have literally been like, I'm going to just 
go dig a hole. Like there won't be any artists. There will not be any ceremony, no spiritual leaders. Would you like to join me? Hundreds of people would have been like, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. I definitely want to hang out with people in person. Um, but just feeling the invitation in the, out of the context of how grief stricken this year and a half, two years have been. And always I would add on top of like what you did, this project was a need already before a pandemic, you know? Seriously. Uh, Having having it sell out is like no surprise. Thanks. It was a surprise to me. (laughs) You were surprised? Really? Yeah, I was surprised because, you know, there was just, there was a lot with this project around, um, you know, the restrictions of COVID and are people going to come? What are they going to be comfortable with? Um, Mm -hmm. There wasn't any institutional support per se. I mean, the Shalom Institute supported it. Um, The American Jewish University helped to fund it. Um, But really like we did it Mm -hmm. by the, you know, our grit um, of just this collective of a handful of people Mm. really knowing that it had to come together. And Mm -hmm. you just never know how, um, how wide, you know, how things resonate and how far they travel. And Mm -hmm. um, I was really moved, like profoundly moved by how resonant it was. Like Mm -hmm. when I was digging, first of all, it was so much organizing uh, that I was really wearing my organizer's hat too much. And I had to shift a lot to being the artist. And when we were on the site, I would tell the other people working on it with me, like when I'm on the site, I need to be the artist. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't ask me where the bathrooms are. Like Mm -hmm. I need to be doing this work. Um, Mm -hmm. and so by having that boundary, to be able to go into the work of the digging and the meaning and mm. the heartfeltness of the digging was, um, I'm really glad that I did that because it allowed yeah. me to be present with it. And it was so, um, I felt totally at home in this process. Mm. I, I, I was sore, my body was tired, but it's, it was the only place I wanted to be. And it was the only thing I wanted to do. I felt like I could have been there for a month, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, totally. That's, um, and, and, and people showed up, you know, I only dug by myself one day and, and I, I invited people to come from eight to 10 in the morning before it was too hot. So Mm. this is like an hour and a half outside of LA, Mm. um, early in the morning in the mountains, And people showed up with shovels and with stories and we cried and we laughed. I mean, it was really the whole gamut. It was, it was a powerful experience. Oh man. Sounds so incredible. Yeah. Really wish I could have been there. So nice to hear you you. talk about it. Um, I can't help but acknowledge again, a piece that I feel like you would, and I think it's important to for what the for the work you're doing, that it's ultimately not about you, but that it absolutely must start with you. Like your heartbreak, mm-hmm. some way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're grief stricken, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, would you say that that's, I mean, even, you know, the list too. It's like you're, it's your heartbreak that you begin with. You're cracking mm-hmm. open, you're weeping before you can get to the point maybe, which is like that it's not about you, it's about, all these people, all these people mm-hmm. that were murdered. Um, mm-hmm. 
Would you agree though that it that it start it must start there? Maybe I'm just like stating the obvious. No, it must. Yeah, of course it must. I mean, like I wouldn't how else to engage, you know? Mm-hmm. Like how else to choose what you work on, you know? Right. This is you have to stay engaged, you have to stay really persistent and you have to fight for the work to happen often. Yeah. Um, you know, in in the case of digs for sure, like we really, you know, when I brought other people in and it was resonant for them, then it was like, this is something that we really need to see happen. Yeah, more. And we need to experience, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, that's the thing. It's like one, and that also happens with this is not a gun. Like it's, it's one thing to talk about it. And it's a whole other thing to be at the workshop with your hands in the clay, sure. making something and something that Angela and I stress a lot as both as makers, hand makers of with materials is that something is being transmuted from your body into the material and that you are then bypassing your intellect and you're having an experience that is based emotionally and through your body and through touch. And, and I have spent a lot of time learning about touch Uh, And sort of like your hands, you know, your hands are your first eyes. Before you can see, you're using your hands to navigate, to find your mother, to find your environment. And as a society now, we are really detached from touch. And all this information that we're talking about that we keep coming back to in this conversation, the information that comes through us, we don't touch it. You know, it would feel really different if you touched it. Uh, the, the level of trauma that we witness on a daily basis, just by going through the 12 waking hours from morning to night, driving to work, driving home, listening to the radio, looking at billboards, that is so exceeds what our biological bodies have evolved to be able to take in you know, on a palpable level that we have created all this intellectual bypassing that enables us to be like, oh, all these homeless people, you know, or houseless people, like whatever, you know, like too bad, Mm -hmm. you know, if you, you need a certain level of resilience to be able to move through the day, right? And not be heartbroken all the time. Yeah. But also like the suffering that we witness is just, it's, it's boundless. Mm. Um, you know, so <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. So I think that that embodiment, that using your body to dig the hole, ha- touching the dirt in the earth, using the clay, which is also dirt and water, that those things are, um, are relevant elements, you know, mm. yeah. of the process. Yeah. 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 Um, a couple things coming up for me. There's, you know, you're going to die. The way I relate to it is that I I created a space that I needed, especially right after my mother-in-law died, which brought yes. all this stuff up from my mother's death, like years earlier, yes. you know. Um, and uh, and that moment of of it, that I still feel, whereas it's like, oh my god, you all want to do this? Like you're gonna sell this thing out? Like okay, right. everyone else needs it too. And I, so I just right. love the moment of like, I need to fucking dig a hole. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I need to dig a hole. <laughs> and then everybody else is like, 
I'll fucking dig a hole. I need to dig a hole, you know? Um, and, and the truck, We're so basic, <laughs> totally, you know? Like, totally. we're just animals. <laughs> yeah. And that you could trust that and, and, and so then give it to others, you know? Trust that in you, so then you give it to others. Um, and really feeling that. And so what I want to move to next, really important to me, is hearing a bit of why you can know. And, and, mm. and, and Cara, I think that I wonder if why you can know is because of what you've lived through. And so I do want to make time mm. for, for that right now, which is as much as you're willing to share kind of w- what that is, like what you, sure. and, and I guess the way to be, be specific about what you might share is what's the story, what's the like mm-hmm. living experience that really definitively connects to like, and you can be like, there's no connection there. Like you're missing steps. Cause like what I'm asking is like, what's the living experience you've had that has you present to knowing I need Mm. to dig a hole. And so, but the basic question is like, I do want to hear your personal, you know, your personal story that leads to all of this. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I mean, I do believe that, you know, we're, we're made, we're built by our experiences and those start at birth and, um, and we have all suffered and, and we all have different kinds of suffering. Um, and that the suffering can be a great teacher. Um, and, you know, I think, I know you're speaking to, a story that I told you that I'm happy to share around living with chronic illness, um, which changed me, <laughs> um, in my early, in about when I was about 30, 31. Um, but I think before that, I think it's also just important to say that I grew up in a house, um, with a lot of illness, um, and, with a, with a mother who was sick for most of my childhood, much of my childhood. Um, and that, um, I actually became very resilient and, um, like hyper independent, uh, and like hyper, I'll just take care of myself. Like no one else is around. I had two brothers. We fought all the time. And my response, you know, all three of us had different responses Mm-hmm. Um, and my response was, I, I got it. I'll take care of myself. I pack a bag and I, I you know, I sit at the bus stop and try to run away mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then nobody would come looking for me. So I would just go back home feeling like kind of defeated, mm. you know, <laughs> uh, and, oh. and I carried that hyper self-reliance and independence into my adulthood um, until I got really sick. Um, and I, when I was about 30, I started to have chronic debilitating migraines, Mm -hmm. um, that had me debilitated for about a year. And then I had another year of like severe depression of coming through that period of illness. (laughs) Mm. Um, and I, in that time, I definitely needed to learn how to ask for help, which is important. 
Um, and I, I couldn't solve it. Uh, and, but more than anything, I, you know, and what you and I have talked about is that pain and illness that I lived through really highlighted to me the fragility of life. Like it's really, you know, in a way it's cliche or, um, you know, it's, it's not an uncommon story with people who come through disease or illness. Um, but you know, I suffered a kind of pain that I didn't know I could survive. Mm. I also didn't know, existed. I didn't know you could live, you could be alive and be in the level of pain I was in. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, or I don't like that word, but it's wild. Um, you know, like what we can endure. Um, it's, it's quite remarkable. It's, it's Mm -hmm. actually unbelievable. Mm Um, and in that time, I had a very profound shift um, that took place like in a moment where I really like dynamically shifted from a state of fear of being really afraid that I was going to die, that I had like an aneurysm or cancer or some horrible illness that would kill me. Mm-hmm. And then had a, a revelation that I was still alive. <laughs> mm. Like it's really simple, but um, and I was still alive and I knew what it was and that people don't die from this pain. I wasn't going to mm. die from this. Um, and when I was in the migraines, so my headaches lasted like seven days And I would be debilitated for like four or five. So I would like kind of fall down into a a dark hole Mm -hmm. (laughs) where I couldn't, you know, see anyone or touch anything. And I would just like be in my bed with ice on my head, like rotating ice packs Mm -hmm. for, for days. Mm. Um, And, and in that time, like a really powerful, physiological shift, I I believe took place in my body, which is, you know, I don't talk about this a lot, but I think this is a place where I can talk about this. Mm. Um, but basically like I was coursing a lot of pain in my body and I had to, you know, I have this theory, I'm sort of shifting, but I have this theory. Um, I actually wrote my, my master's degree thesis was called between a rock and a soft place. Mm. And I, I, so this is years before my, my illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because I really believe that you don't get stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like you're stuck, you're stuck. And then something gives, you know, whether it gets worse or it gets better, it doesn't, you don't know, but mm-hmm. it's like something will move impermanence is the only thing we know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and so that's kind of what happened is like, I couldn't sustain the pain and the fear together because the Mm. fear propelled the pain. Mm -hmm. Um, and so something shifted where I began to observe the pain from like another perspective and Mm. I could become curious 
Mm-hmm. I could become curious about the darkness. I could become curious about the pain and I could kind of recognize, I don't know. It was just different. It was different. This curiosity came from a place of like life and inquiry and love mm-hmm. as opposed to like, I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't, this wasn't around the time you saw the truck that said fear is a liar, right? No, this is, this is years before. <laughs> yeah, no, and, good, But good. you know, and the truth is, right? The fear was a liar for me, but mm. I had to believe, I had to live it. And this is my own yes. experience. Yes. And the fear drove me to survive. It's mm. both, you know, mm-hmm. because totally. to get to I the saw every, you had to start with yes. fear. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. I saw every doctor. I I was having steroids injected into my head. Mm. Um, oh my god! <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of I didn't pain know that people happens. live in. <laughs> I didn't know yeah. that that's something that happens. I didn't know that that's something um, that happens either. Oh my god! And then you know, I met an incredible man. Um, about nine months into this period, my neurologist said to me, you know, and this is after I had been hospitalized in the emergency room, I had been, you know, I just, as horrible as these things can happen, that's where I was. Mm -hmm. And um, my doctor was like, you know, we have a chronic pain group uh, and a chronic headache group. Like that might be something you would enjoy. And I was Mm. like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm all alone. Yes. Oh man. I know. Like I'm sorry, all the like, imitation that, is hilarious. Like what who's ever said like you would really enjoy this chronic headache? Or like group? that it might be relevant to you. And it's like you think this could have been the first thing you told me, <laughs> yeah, you know? Immediately. Immediately. Like, so and and that speaks to the medical system, but mm-hmm. I went and it was um, it was life changing. The mm-hmm. the doctor in the chronic pain group teaches us how to use mind control and meditation, but through a system called biofeedback to move your headaches. Mm. Um, and he taught me to harness something that I already had the tools for because I've been a long time meditator and I did not understand how you could put those two things together or or how they were already working for me. Yeah. And um through going to this group, I learned how to move my headaches through concentration. And I will say first here, I do not prescribe any method of pain control of what I did would work for you to anybody. Sure. There are Thank a you. dozen ways up the hill, you know, and do what works, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, this this saved my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to speak to your original question, after that, it was like, well, shoot, like I'm alive. <laughs> and um, this is so great, you know? Like, and I only get this now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I felt like a... a profound gratitude, an unbelievable gratitude, a gratitude that I did not know 
like I could feel or existed Mm. like an abundant sense of grace and gratitude for life. Like it felt miraculous in, Mm. in the most religiosity kind of ways, um, to be able to survive, Mm. um, what befell me. And I also think it gave me a sense that it's important to take risks you know, because this is what we've got. This is life is now for me. Um, and it's so fragile. It could be gone so quickly. Um, and, and I really feel that in my heart and it's important to remember. So thank you for, cause we can get mired and as you get a distance from those kinds of realizations, it's easy to be like, ah, the traffic, you know, like, work. (laughs) Uh, It's important to remember. usual check out the show notes for all the links to our guest Kara specifically asked us to encourage you to support progressive art studios wherever you live but also in the world and we'll do our best to kind of share some links to some progressive art studios in the San Francisco Bay Area because that's our home our organization's home but also check out the equal justice initiative and Critical Resistance. We'll put a couple links in the show notes, but also Kara's website will be in there. The link to the Dig documentary will be in there. All the things. Thanks, Kara. And again, to Angela for introducing us. But thank you, Kara, so much. Uh, Really love uh, getting to talk to you and sharing this episode with our listeners. Nick Jaina, hello. Hi. Hi. Let's do the opposite of Smartless. I've been listening to Smartless uh, a lot um, during my trip to Oregon. Mm-hmm. I listen to a lot of episodes, and at the end of every episode, they keep saying "bye, bye." Mm-hmm. And so we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do the opposite, I guess. Okay, you wanna try it on? <laughs> um, I just made a gross face. Uh, yeah, and 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 also this connects kind of to I feel like some of what I was mentioning at the introduction, which is this uh, this lightness, this humor. Uh, I loved listening to Smart List, but you know what I listened to? I listened to the episode with Bradley Cooper that you recommended to me, and I was mm-hmm. going to text you about it, but I'm glad I'm remembering to say so now. Um, just the emotion of those guys talking about alcoholism and kind of getting called out on stuff very directly, you know, during a time, at least for Bradley Cooper, where he was really kind of struggling and figuring stuff out. And Will Arnett just was the guy who said the thing, you know, very Mm -hmm. emotional. And, but that episode's so great in a way that I hope we keep kind of creating well-rounded experiences for the like room for the grief and the darkness and the humor and lightness. And we're alive and look at us getting to 
be creative like little boys uh <laughs> little artistic boys <laughs> that doesn't i don't think i wanted that to sound in a way that wasn't weird but it totally ended up sounding weird mm-hmm. uh-huh <laughs> yeah anyway so there you go nick i lobbed you a bunch of threads which one do you want to pull on buddy <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, I recommended that episode to you because uh, there's this veneer of celebrity talk and just like, how did you make it? And like, who did you meet? And all this Which stuff. Which they do and a lot of, but. Yeah, and it's just still so surprising and welcome when somebody mm. kind of breaks through and just, uh, the, the thing that got me with that episode is like, he, Bradley Cooper's voice started choking up before yeah. I realized what he was even saying, you know, like yeah. that it was actually an emotional thing. Like he, he knew it before, like he had actually communicated anything mm-hmm. about it. And it's just that moment of like, Oh wait, what's this? Yeah. <laughs> this is real. Wow. This doesn't sound like a, like a publicist asked him to do something, you know, totally. Um, in fact, it's probably like publicists scrambling like, well, no, don't cut that, cut that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, when you listen to a lot of their episodes, there's there, I, I had some moments, which I really appreciated where, like uh, like us in our interviews, you know how I set up the interviews with our guests, this like, we'll talk about whatever and then we'll edit it out afterwards. There's even some episodes of Smartless where they they say to the guests like, hey, what about this thing? And by the way, we can cut this out later and they just include it in the episode. Mm-hmm. But totally getting that image piece, you know? What are we selling and how good do we always look and and how how thirsty we are for these human beings to be great like we love them to be like they're funny they're successful they're incredibly talented and also they're like damn raw and real like they can do that too god i want more of that you know and i with performance too i played a show recently with a friend who kind of like flubbed some notes that they were playing and was really upset about it afterwards and i was Mm. like honestly i feel so grateful when somebody does that yeah and and keeps going and can roll with it because mm-hmm. it's this invitation that's like, oh, we're this is real and we're hanging out and like we're not gonna take this too seriously and yeah. we're gonna like just focus on the vibe, you know? Yeah. And it's so hard to remember as the person doing it because you think your job is to be perfect mm-hmm. as a performer, mm-hmm. but really it's to connect, you know. Yeah. And you know, you want a certain level of professionalism and and expertise, but then you also want those little little cracks you know yeah yeah and there's a way about like i think of you as this kind of artist where part of your professionalism and like like uh skill and and whatever quote-unquote cleanness to say a set which that that's not quite the word but is that when those moments happen you integrate them you know like you're you it's an opportunity to do that right like show people how you're just you're real but also skillfully in a way um as an opportunity even if it's catharsis of a laugh or a leveling of the playing field uh you know just a, an access point to connect to the humanness of our like fallibility or whatever you know it's yeah. just that that's powerful to me yeah. you know you do that too and and you know how it's just like grist for what you're doing because mm-hmm. you're doing a lot of extemporaneous speaking and like sometimes like a bottle falling on the floor is <laughs> yeah. perfect icebreaker, just moment to comment, like make a face and like people are, people laugh and then they're more engaged, you know? Yeah. Um, and then sometimes the bottle crashing is <laughs> 
feels like everything's falling apart if you're in the wrong headspace. You know? Sure, sure. And um, as performers, I think you and I both have the like, that definitely, you know, is a bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, but what a good thing to just practice how little it really matters in the grand scheme. And um, which reminds me actually sort of the contrasting, knowing that, you know, like thinking of your new book that you're, you have coming out, like there's ways you don't want it to have mistakes. You know what I mean? Like you want it to be exactly <laughs> what you want to put into the world. And that mm-hmm. that is part of our work. And with the podcast is part of our work. But um, for the listeners, Nick and I just got to go see the Lumineers and, and meet Wesley Schultz. I mean, Nick knows him, but I had never met him in person after our interview on the podcast, which I obviously recommend. Um, it was really nice to get to be at the show here in San Francisco and, and, and get to be with Wesley in person and, and other members of the band. And, and just, just a couple quick things like be in the music, like community that I love and, see it extended through like how many people showed up at that show that I know through you're going to die and through you and Chelsea and, and, and Josiah Johnson, who's been on the show. And, um, I'm sure some musicians that, that our guests will get to hear from in future episodes, but that was really cool. And it was cool for a way, uh, in a way that connects to something that was really powerful for me. I'm, I'm connecting multiple things, Nick, you're just going to have to bear with me. I'm going to land this just like I want to. <laughs> okay. So here's the, here's all the parts. The Lumineers, this version of playing these big arenas, you know, it's at Chase Center, uh, the Warriors Stadium, everybody is where this show is happening. I think there's a way when you're playing that level of a show that it might even be demanded of you to have it be clean and powerful and connected to like lights and the show of it on that biggest scale, which is something, right? It's like your book. It's like, there are ways we want to put things in the world that are clean and, and, and effective because of it. Um, and then in contrast to that, I had this moment holding my wife's hand in the middle of all that bigness where I was like, really realizing what little I need beyond that hand, you know, Hmm. and how we have versions of that in our lives that I feel I need to practice remembering. Because when we live in a culture that makes big, big experiences and encourages us to be successful and affect everybody in big, big ways as much as we can and sell it, you know, to, to be brought into the moment with that simple like handhold and Mm. then what connects to you and the music community was getting to go afterwards into this like weird media uh room for the like usually used for warriors newscasting um it's just this this room where we're just sitting around and i'm getting to be with you and chelsea and my wife and wesley and stealth from the lumineers and Aviva Le Fay and all these more musicians that I can't even name because they're all y'all's friends, but just feeling like, oh, it's like it, it doesn't even have anything to do with all that big stuff and or, or it doesn't have to do with just that. It doesn't have to do just with the music and the creating and the getting it right and putting it out there in ways that we care and want it to matter to others. It's also like us. You know, just like getting Mm -hmm. to be with other people who care about the same things, you know, yeah, that's, that was really big deal for me. 
My version of that was I, I got to go twice to the show. I went the night before in Sacramento and I went with my stepson Otis, who's eight, and he had never been to a big show like that, you know, he, like an arena show or any venue show, you know, just like house shows, he would be there. <laughs> and so I was like, here's your first arena show. And <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it's it's a, crazy. you know, park far away. And we're like walking through downtown. I'm like, come on, we're, we're late. Come on. You know, just yeah. taking his time. I was like, come on, you know, and we get to the arena and we're on the wrong side. We have to go all the way around and then get the tickets and then go all the way back around and walk through. And I hear the band starting and I'm like, come on, come on. You know, <laughs> and I'm getting kind of frustrated that he's like taking so long, you know, and he's like, I'm hungry. I need a meal. And I was like, we just had dinner an hour ago. What are you talking about? He's like, God, I know I all need this. a meal. I, 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 I like, know all what? of this. Yeah. <laughs> so we go and there's a hot dog stand and we get a hot dog and I, I give him the hot dog and we go over to the condiment uh, stand and I'm like, what do you, what do you want? And he's like ketchup. And I open this ketchup packet and I put it on the hot dog and I look over at his face mm. and he looks like he's watching the show already you know yeah totally. he has this and i will never forget that because it's the same thing i think you're saying mm. like it just it all it, i i started choking up when i saw him because mm. he was just like yeah yeah ketchup yeah yeah ketchup. <laughs> like totally sincerely like he was so stoked about this ketchup so going on an arena hot dog and i was mm. like what am i doing <laughs> you know like oh. how can i put a frame around or like point mm -hmm. to or you know like all those ways that you mm -hmm. try to like show your kids the amazing thing and they're like yeah no, it's this. Like, I just love ketchup on a hot dog. Mm, yeah, slow down. <laughs> and then we sat yeah. down and he ate the hot dog and I just would look over at him and he was just loving that hot dog. And like, the show was fine, but like that yeah. hot dog was just so, that was so it. important. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners, the next night is the show Nick and I both were at. And I asked him like, how was it with, how did Otis like it? And, he, and that was all Nick said. He liked his hot dog. And uh, I it's a great to show, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, no, everybody, listen, you don't need to have a special handhold, although it's wonderful to share a handhold in a great show. And and you, you maybe should get something to eat, and that's lovely and all that. The show's great. It doesn't need those things. Uh, but, but really cool to circle back and make that connection. And I think there is this way, as we get older, where we just start to increase our pace for getting to the next big thing. Instead of like what we all know kids do so naturally well, which is like right here, you know, and I, and I, and I know that with the kids, my own kids, I know what you just described through and through. <laughs> and it's funny that I've learned it enough now to be like, when I want to go to a show or a baseball game or whatever, and the kids maybe aren't as interested, I'll be like, mm -hmm. there'll be hot dogs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there'll be candy. We'll have treats and savory food. Or just, just anything like, 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 let's go to the park. All right, let's walk to the park. And they're like dawdling, going to the park. And I'm like, realizing this moment of like, we got to get to the park. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, everything is a park to a kid. Yeah. Like, you know, like a tree of a, a whatever piece of grass mm. that is interesting is, is a mm -hmm. park. And we're always so destination focused as adults. Mm. And, you know, it's a good reminder to just, yeah. like, what, where, where are you going? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's good. I need to practice that more. Um, I really do. So it's good to make a little time to connect all that. And I'm complete. I'm good. I have nothing else to say <laughs> to you, Nick, oh. or you listeners. <laughs> okay. no, until the next, the next episode, I'll talk to you before then though, Nick, of course I have more to say to you off the record. <laughs> um, but, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Nick, as usual for all your work, um, on this, uh, glad to get another one done with you. All right. 
拜拜。